Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you? Fine, you're looking very... That's a very... Um, Come on, find the adjective. Interesting shirt. Nobody ever says interesting in that context and me as a compliment. No, I think it's quite nice. It's sort of white with a sort of green, unruly pattern. What's your problem with this shirt? I can tell you've got a problem with it. I like the shirt. I know you've been it's trying good. to work on your shirt shaming these past few years, but no, I, no, I, can t- I know you. It works for you, that shirt. <laughs> Again, I'm not sure anybody ever says that as a compliment. And um, I see you are wearing a jumper that your mum has knitted for you. Is that, is that what you're wearing today? Yes, that's <laughs> correct. Uh, 1980s is in vogue. It is, Normcore. How is it going? I mean, there's so many spoilers in the vicinity of, you know, as somebody who's who's languishing on Series 3, I sort of feel like, I know the big reveal of Series 4, it's been impossible to avoid. Yeah, there's plenty more where that came from. Is it, we, is it nearly at the end? Yeah, two more episodes. People should explain what this context because is. Because I'm doing this Succession podcast. You're doing an episode every day for Finale Week. And a live show. And hosting a, a screening of the finale at two in the morning with Jesse Armstrong at the BFI. <laughs> so. so he's he's going to be up at two o'clock in the morning. Yes. And I have been thinking, I'm not sure that succession skews necessarily to the demographic who are accustomed to being up till three, four in the morning clubbing. I think it's probably going to be a lot of people who haven't been out of the house after about 11pm in many, many years, myself included. Is it your podcast is putting on this? No. So, so we have been asked to host the show oh i see yes so it's not your gig no but our our show is at the soho theater like a few amazing, days before which also sold out yeah amazing i know but it'll you know i'll, I'll be back to loserville in two weeks when i haven't got succession to hang on to the, t- oh, the tailcoat of sorry what, what does that mean about our podcast what do you mean if you're back to loserville <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of me outside of this podcast. This is Winnerville. This is Winner Garden City. I did actually once talk to you about doing cheerful daily. Do you remember doing a daily cheerful? We never quite got round to no, it. No, but we've got we've we've got something up our sleeves, which wouldn't be daily, but it would be a, an extra little thing every week. Were well, you not on that email chain? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell the listeners? No, 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 because we're, we're not ready to announce yet. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, we, we've got to have a great ad. What is the everyday episodes going to do? Well, we've got cast member interviews. So we have your friend uh, Harriet Walters on, oh. who plays Lady Caroline. Yeah, yeah. Um, we 
have Willa, who is Connor's yeah. girlfriend. Um, we have Kendall's ex-wife, Rava. We have the director, Mark Mylod. And then Jesse's going to do the finale with us. So, And what's the, what day does it go out, the last one? Sunday into Monday. So it goes out at 9 o'clock in the States, which is 2 a.m. here, yeah. East Coast time. And when is it on here? Well, they show it on a Monday evening, but you can watch it on demand whenever you like on a Monday. So why does everyone need to go to the BFI at 2 in the morning? Because it's, it's an event. It's the zeitgeist. <laughs> oh, I see, I this, see, This I seminal see. piece of prestige television I is, see, I see. is reaching its conclusion and people want to be there I to celebrate that. I do remember, you know, a news report about the vhs of who the who shot jr episode being brought over on an airplane and i remember it being covered on the news yes it's like you with tapes of the archers but going in the opposite direction exactly how did they keep it quiet though if the vhs was coming over because there was no internet in those days if something was in a newspaper somebody had one copy on vhs what are they going to do like pass it around the country no, but somebody in America could have seen it. I suppose there's no way of getting it. No, no one could tweet saying... No. It was Kristen that shot JR. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh. <laughs> Do you think in some ways Succession is the Dallas of the modern era? Oh, I don't know. You, you're the much more the expert on that than me. What? Like a, a wealthy family all vying for control? I mean, it's sort of water cooler-ish, isn't it? Yes, I've not been near a water cooler in years, and I'd, no. I'd love to go near one and have a chat. No, about but you it. know what I mean. Yes. Well, that's great. So, well, enjoy Winnerville, and I will welcome you back to Loserville with open arms <laughs> when you're ready. Now, for anybody who couldn't get tickets to either of those succession events, <laughs> yeah. We should mention our live show in Stratford-upon-Avon on the 3rd of June. We should, and it's going, to be a, it's going to be a banger. Is that a correct Yeah, all bangers all the time. Yeah. And I think we can tell people that we're going to be talking about climate education in, in schools and climate activism among young people. It's going to be good, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be great. And it's part of the Live at the RSC festival. So you need to get yourself to Stratford and enjoy all the stuff that's going on because it really is an incredible programme of events and shows. It's a banger. There's a link to get your tickets in the notes of this episode. I've manifested that. Do you want to say what we're talking about? Yes, this week we are talking about the Garden City movement. Now, this was suggested to us by a listener and we just really liked the idea straight away when we first heard about it. The Garden City is an idea, its origins are about 125 years ago, and the thought was about how to best plan and build a city that combines the best of town and country. It was a big utopian idea at the time. It was intended to improve the lives of many people, but it is surprising, actually, how many of the principles still stand today. We are going to be talking to Josh Tidy and Nick Skinner, who are from Letchworth, about the history of the Garden City and what it's like to live there now, and to Katie Locke from the Town and Country Planning Association about the future of Garden Cities. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? I had a million-dollar idea, I think. I know you're always looking for business ventures. Pray tell. Right. You know, I went away for a few days for my birthday. Yeah. I was on a sun lounger, and, and it just came to me. What about a sun lounger where you can adjust the angle of it while you're actually laying on it? Because I don't know about you, but whenever Rather that, yeah, yeah, I'm always always going wrong. It goes flat, it bangs. Everybody looks at me. I can never get it back up again. What about that? Yeah, do they not exist? It's one of those things that should exist but doesn't, like uh, tables in restaurants that don't wobble. Are you sure it doesn't exist? Have you been on one? No. There we go. Maybe that's the way to get out of Loserville. <laughs> that's. I'm never going to hear the last of that, am I? All right. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Night Agent on Netflix. It's about a guy who works for the Secret Service in, in the US and nefarious goings-on against the state. And it passed the Ed test and the Justine test because you and your yeah. wife are, are, are incredibly yeah, picky, pretty... increasingly with age, uh, about what you will and what you won't watch. Yeah, anything gory, anything... Involving the law, the law, anything involving politics, Pum. anything involving backstabbing. It's all very difficult. But the night agent passes. I mean, the I have to say, agent. it doesn't sound very compelling without any of those things in it. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start the conversation, I'd like to say that we're joined by Josh Tidy, who is the Heritage Manager at the Letchworth Garden City Foundation and also a man of many hats, the curator of the International Garden Cities exhibition. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Tell us, first of all, maybe, if you would, where the term Garden City 
came from and who we need to thank for it. So Garden Cities were the brainchild of Ebenezer Howard, who was a late Victorian, early Edwardian social reformer. And really, he was trying to solve problems of the late Victorian age by creating a new type of town, a new type of way of living. And Garden Cities brought in the best parts of town and country, so with none of the disadvantages of either, essentially. So he was really trying to solve the problems of the late Victorian era, so mass influx of people from the countryside into towns, as the Industrial Revolution created jobs and factories. And accompanying that were a housing shortage and consequently poor living conditions as more people moved into towns, conditions got worse, and the money just went off to some landowner somewhere. So Howard's idea was really quite radical. He wanted to create better places to live, but really he wanted to change the way that towns worked. So a company would run the town, and instead of the money and increase in value as the town grew going off, it would be retained locally and then reinvested for the benefit of the people living there. And what were some of the main principles underpinning his vision or his idea for Garden City? So uh, Garden City is uh, a pioneer of lots of things we take for granted now. But So it's the first time where we see a green belt surrounding a town. It was intended to feed the, the town, its population. It's the first real example of zoning for different areas. So the, there's an industrial area and different housing and uh, really incorporating big areas of green open spaces uh, throughout the town. It was a quite a sort of pioneering new town in that sense. And this idea of a company running it, how, how does that square with democracy? Well, the idea was it's actually a kind of weird paradox of a private enterprise and a slightly sort of mildly socialist idea where the people would all share the Commonwealth as the town grew. People would be elected to help run the town. Interestingly, the best ideas that Howard had for Garden Cities was that the people living there should have a real democratic mandate on certain things. So the example he chose was if, a, if there are two greengrocers in the town and a third wants to open, rather than just saying yes, they would let the people decide. On the ground in Letchworth, the only issue that actually happened on was what was called the licence question, which was whether there should be a licensed premises in the town centre. And uh, every man and woman over 18 got the vote from 1907 to about 1958 wow. on whether there should be a pub in the town centre. And what happened? Well, they yeah, consistently voted narrowly against. And consequently, there's this myth that Latchworth was a dry town. It was actually a town of home deliveries from the breweries in neighbouring towns and things like that. To, and to go to a kind of more detailed level of granularity, Josh, what is different about how garden cities were laid out, with the vision for how they were laid out, as against how we build and plan towns and cities now? If, if you were parachuted into one, how would you instantly know it's a garden city? You would know because you're, you feel like the countryside's in the town, there's trees and open spaces. You'd also know because all the housing is a good quality, whether it's for workers or for factory owners. Um, there was a real belief that even... Humble workers should have good quality housing with a garden to grow their own vegetables, supplement their income, all that sort of thing. Interestingly, if you go to good quality 1920s council housing estates, you can turn a corner there and it feels like you're in Letchworth because it's got the good quality housing design and layout that was trialled, if you like, here in Letchworth. What was Howard's deal? Like, what's his story? Why was this important to him? Yeah, so Howard's interesting because he isn't like a, a big self-important industrialist. So the previous models had, of factory villages and things had been factory owners trying to improve the productivity of their workers, essentially. Basically, if you were making chocolate, you built a village. That's right, yes. But Howard sort of was inspired by all of those things and he was influenced by writings about utopian ways of living. But the thing that set him apart was that he wasn't a hugely wealthy or egotistical man. And he was more interested in how you might actually make it happen than writing books about glistening fountains and dappled sunlight. It, his biographer called him a practical idealist. So he was much more interested in nuts and bolts. And uh, extraordinary achievement. He wrote a book about a new type of town, these garden cities, in 1898. By 1903, they were building the first one. So it's taken five years. He's wow. 53 years old. 
and achieving the, the life's work he'll be remembered for forever. Wow. There you go, Ed. Look, somebody achieving something in the mid-50s. At the age of 53. And let's talk about what then happened. So Letchworth and Wellin are the UK's garden cities, and there's Hampstead Garden Suburb too. Would we be right in saying that the idea didn't develop any further in Britain, or are we missing something? Yeah, so the, you would be right in saying that. There's a few things that happened. Um, it's actually a very difficult thing to do. You need to negotiate with all the surrounding landowners and get the capital together and all those things, so it was difficult to replicate. The thing that was easy to replicate and was done so was uh, building good quality workers' housing on good layout plans by the people that did Letchworth. So every town city, well, every major city in the UK essentially has a garden suburb that was built before the First World War. If you think about new towns like Milton Keynes, for example, was there a deliberate move away from that garden city idea or was it not really thought about in that context? So we very much see new towns as being part of the same thread that started with Howard and, and the Garden Cities. What did for Garden Cities being replicated widely was the difficulty of the endeavour and also council housing, filling that gap to provide good quality housing for workers. New towns are really, are really a continuation of the Garden City idea. They essentially all paid for themselves. They suffer a little bit from the architecture and building materials of the time, but they were largely a success. The biggest difference between new towns and garden cities is that with new towns, the money all went to the treasury rather than being re- retained locally and reinvested. How much has it gone international? But I said you were the curator of the International Garden Cities exhibition. How international did the garden cities idea go? So Garden Suburbs certainly spread immediately, very quickly. Howard's book was translated into... French, German, Russian and Japanese before the First World War. And Lenin visited Letchworth, or so the story goes. So the legend goes. This is one of those things with the never letting facts get in the way of a good story. Right, I see. <laughs> he was a voracious uh, diarist. He left no detail unrecorded and he never wrote that he came to Letchworth. Right, OK. He was too busy enjoying the Garden That's City. That's right. But he yeah. was in, you know, he was in that circle and there were lots of people in Letchworth who would have welcomed him with open arms. So, so go on, if you want to go and visit Garden City elsewhere in the world, where would you go? Germany was really quick at adopting garden suburbs more than garden cities. If you're zooming around on Google Maps on the satellite view, you'll see a green blob and you'll recognise bits of the layout of Letchworth that they've just lifted directly. So you could do a lot worse than go to Hellerau in Dresden, for example, or um, there's a couple of even modern ones uh, down in Frankfurt. Come on, Josh, be honest with us. Which is best, Wellin or Letchworth? Uh, people always ask this. Uh, I can't get involved, but I will say that Howard went to live in Wellin, but chose to be buried in Letchworth. What do we draw from that, Josh? Well, I think that Josh is leaving it deliberately ambiguous there for you to draw your own conclusion. It's like saying, Jeff, whether you prefer outdoor wild swimming or Lido's, you know. Yes, yeah, but you've got to pick a side. There's an excellent Lido in Letchworth still, by the way. Ah, there you go. Now I'm really sold, Jeff, on the Garden City concept. You want to swim in Letchworth and be buried in Wellin. Yeah. You said a lot of the ideas underpinning the garden cities we now take for granted. What what got lost? What do you think we could learn from garden cities that perhaps gets overlooked in urban planning? Well, I mean, planning today is not what it was in 1903. There are certainly dozens more barriers to creating anything as optimistic or hopeful as Letchworth Garden City. I think lots of the ideas are still completely sound, uh, but they're perhaps prohibitively difficult to achieve today. The idea of creating good quality places for people to live, you know, the, the focus on sort of parks and communal spaces. I think lots of these things are things that are lost in today's world. I always feel quite privileged being in charge of the history here where I'm not dusting off things on shelves. I'm kind of in charge of a live idea that's uh, ready to be reanimated. And, and is the idea of a garden city, is it something you basically wind up and let it go? Or does it need constant tending to? Howard felt they needed to be done by private investment to start with to demonstrate the quality of the idea, but then felt that the state would, it would be demonstrably a good idea and that the state would take over and it would run and run. So has it needed tending? Yes, it probably has. In Letchworth, for example... The town itself was set up by a company with charitable purpose, but was technically just a company. When the town really started making money in the late 50s, 
Uh, it was taken over by a sort of venture capitalist, essentially, and the town was saved by an act of parliament. But it, that has strengthened the town because the all of the principles that Howard set in motion are now protected by government statute. Well, look, Josh Tidy, you've given us a, a brilliant insight into the vision of Ebenezer Howard and Garden Cities. We'll come and visit. Please do. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With us now is Nick Skinner, who's manager of the settlement in Letchworth Garden City. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. How is Letchworth today? It's very sunny and it's looking great in the springtime here. How did you come to live in Letchworth? Was its history part of that decision? I came here originally for a job, actually, in a school back in 1997 and got the job as director of music at the school. And I vividly remember coming out of the station at Letchworth and it was a spring morning, much like this morning. And, you know, the flowers were out and the birds were singing. It was absolutely stunning. The contrast was just enormous because previously I'd been living in a tower block in Cable Street, Tower Hamlets, and coming out that morning of the station and suddenly <laughs> Letchworth Garden City, I had no idea. You asked me if I, if I came up here because I knew about Garden Cities. I mean, you know, I had absolutely no idea about, about Letchworth and um, there it all was. Stunning. It was uh, absolutely uh, off the scale. I should raise something with you early on, which is George Orwell said that Letchworth's cooperative ethos attracted, and I quote, every sandal-wearing vegetarian teetotaler. Yes. Are there any sandals or vegetarianism that you'd like to declare? That is so lovely, and it's quite true. And, uh, you know, we actually try and pride ourselves on that, on the quirkiness. And why not, for goodness sake? In fact, there's a new vegan restaurant that's opened in Letchworth, very recently, and is doing very, very well. It's very popular. In fact, if you don't get there by about 2.30pm for lunch, all the food will have gone. You're too late. There is a new vibrancy in the town, and this is run by some young people that are doing this restaurant. George Orwell was right then, and he's right now, is he? He was, he was. It does have a reputation as being a bit uh, a bit cranky, but actually, of course, we love that image. It sounds great! Yeah, I say this as a teetotal sandal-wearing vegetarian. Yeah. Let's not be apologetic. Let's be proud. I think I might have some T-shirts made up, actually, with that on it now. You've said that. <laughs> yeah, we'll go for it. Are the uh, the principles of the Garden City movement, uh, do, do you see them evident in your day-to-day -day life in Letchworth? Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. Because I think Ebenezer Howard's original dream was this thing about balance between, you know, the interests of the town and those of the country. So what's happened 
is that the balance in the garden city has shifted towards the idea of, okay, let's have a bit more space. Let's try and walk a bit more. Let's remember nature a bit more. And so it's a shift towards that. And this, of course, was, you know, 120 years ago. Uh, But it's a fantastic experiment of, of doing that with, you know, amazing confidence and the level of investment to make this whole town work on that premise is, is quite astonishing, actually. So, so, of course, it's really interesting now, isn't it, to see the dream 120 years later and, and see, OK, well, what's it looking like now? We've got hidden allotments, we've got shared gardens, there's a shared orchard, there's public gardens. So, yes, I, I'm aware of it all the time is the answer. Now, you manage the settlement, which is an adult education centre in Letchworth. Talk about how the work that you do contributes to maintaining the identity of Letchworth Garden City. I've been there just over a year, so not terribly long. But the settlement itself uh, has been working for just over 100 years. And it is based on the idea of adult education and just giving away education and, and the arts and access to these things. And that spirit was part of the original dream, obviously, of the Garden Cities. It was all bound together. So, you know, you've got your space, you've got your town and country, but you've also got this idea that education is for you and it's open and we're going to give it to you. And indeed, some parts of what we do, we are giving it away for nothing. So we're hosting Read Easy, for example, just teaching adults to read. And then we host the Ukrainian refugee meetings and so on. And and that's what we want to do. And elsewhere, we have to make a charge because we're completely independent. But we're reinventing and holding on to that original spirit as part of the Garden City because that's bound in to to what we're doing. I'm very pleased to find the ways forward, find ways of reinventing ourselves and um, of, of running it to full capacity in the face of everything that's happened, you know. Let me ask you this question. What are the lessons of Letchworth for the rest of the country? I mean, you, you're, you're painting quite an idyllic vision of of life in Letchworth. Yeah. How transferable is that idea? Is it the Garden City idea or is it less that? Or is it more the way Letchworth organises itself? Is it the vibe? Okay, so the way forward won't be the same as Letchworth Garden City. You know, you're never going to be able to do that again because you're never going to get a, a, a site, I don't think, as big as that. And you're not going to be able to cut into the green belt or, you know, or, you know you're never going to do it again. So I think what you have to do is remember what the original principles were, which is, well, as I see it anyway, you know, faith in people, faith in creativity, faith in the arts, in education, and remember, let's get a good balance. You have to go back to the original principles that Ebenezer Howard's saying and reinterpret. You know, you've got to be creative again. You can't, you can't do it again in exactly the same way. Well, I'm thinking maybe we should uh, relocate Parliament to Letchworth in the Jeffocracy ad. <laughs> well, I've got just the building for you, actually. Oh, yeah. What's that? It's a place called the Nexus Building. It's right in the middle of town. It's owned by the Heritage Foundation. I do think it is a good example, and I do think it would be it would be worth a visit. I don't know whether the podcast will, you know, want to do a trip. No, we love a field trip. We love a field trip. You're most welcome to the world's first garden city. I know that there are people, the architectural students, do regularly come to the town to look at it. Welland Garden City was second. Uh, the local people always are pointing that out. You know, by the way. And I think, you know, the, the, the positioning of them are, is very important because they are midway between Cambridge and London. And there are also a number of people who are commuting. Um, so it's got that aspect as well. And you might say, hang on a minute, you know, you've, just, you've just built paradise. Why are you commuting down to London? It's not a gated community. It's, it's, it's a real town in Hertfordshire. So obviously it's linked in to all these other things. Now, we have a thing, as Jeff said on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as benign dictator, Jeff, yeah? Yeah, and Ed is very much a puppet prime minister. If you were the Minister for Urban Planning or Minister for Garden Cities or whatever you like to call it in the Jeffocracy, what would be your first act? Yes, right, OK. All planning documents should have a little box at the bottom where it says, have you considered the example of Letchworth Garden City? Oh, tick the box. Yeah, you know, there was a guy 120 years ago that was was just 
pointing out that you've got to remember to have a proper balance between things, between space, between nature and the environment and building and work and so on. And you've got to think about it, you know, in an imaginative way. Have you ticked the box on your on your planning? I think I'd I think I'd put that in on day one. That shouldn't take me too long. I'd get that done by lunchtime. How easy is it to retrofit the idea of a garden city onto an existing town? I think there are possibly a few dangers there that if you you know if you put a few planters out on the street and then call it a garden city, you think, well, is it? And it's so easy to say all these things. I mean, I think to to actually achieve it would be difficult. But I do think a, a coach trip up to Letchworth to have a look round at the examples would be necessary. I might even enforce that, actually. We're up for it. We're up for a coach trip. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. That's Nick Skinner from the settlement in Letchworth Garden City. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Thank you. So to talk further about the bigger picture, if you like, on this issue, I'm glad to say that we're joined by Katie Locke, who is Director of Communities and F.J. Osborne Fellow at the Town and Country Planning Association. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Are you a planner by background? I am a planner and urban designer by background, yes. Is there a town or a city that you fangirl over? I do. Do you know, I was actually born in Milton Keynes, Uh the biggest and most successful new town. And now I've found myself promoting garden cities and new towns as my career. So, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of MK. That's (laughs) so funny, isn't it? Tell us a bit more about the origins of the TCPA and how it started out. Sure. Well, the TCPA was founded in 1899 by Ebenezer Howard, who created the Garden City idea. And it was a year after they published his book, Tomorrow, Peaceful Path to Real Reform. And it was really about making the Garden City idea a reality. So the Garden Cities Association, as it was then, led the building of the two garden cities at Letchworth and Welland was then instrumental in the post-war Newtowns programme. And today we're a campaigning charity focused on all aspects of that, about enabling places in which everyone can thrive. And it's, it's kind of an updated version of the original Garden City principles that the TCPA campaigns for. So just give us a, an idea of what that looks like in the modern day. Well, the modern Garden City principles, we wanted to distill those key elements that had made the Garden City model so successful over time. And they've become so embedded in the way we think about how we plan and create places um, that you'd recognise lots of those in terms of creating genuinely affordable homes and zero carbon and energy positive places and walkable neighbourhoods and all those sort of positive urban design things. But the thing that sets the Garden City model apart is about this capturing and sharing of, of land values for community benefit, of the community ownership of land and long-term stewardship of assets and having that vision and and that governance, which really puts people at the heart of of the model, really. Talk to us a little bit about kind of where the Garden City movement is, because we've talked about Wellin, we've talked about Letchworth, Milton Keynes, sort of not exactly a garden city, no, but obviously a new town. Where are things at? It's been a really interesting journey since, you know, the garden city idea really transformed the way we thought about how we plan and deliver places and influenced hundreds of places across the world. And it did influence the post-war new towns programme and places like Milton Keynes, but they were delivered in an entirely different way. So the garden cities were effectively private sector delivery bodies, which worked on on behalf of the community which they were developing and the post-war new towns were more um, a a government-led initiative so an upscaled in terms of the way they were delivered as well but lots of the elements in terms of ensuring places are, are walkable and have good green infrastructure and the importance of art and culture in the way they were developed is a real legacy of the garden cities in the post-war new towns. For over 10 years, the TCEPA has been leading this campaign for a new generation of garden cities and there was a change of government and there was the sort of end of the eco towns program which had been the previous attempt to think about how we might deliver sustainable new communities which was gordon brown proposed these eco towns yeah so when that policy was abandoned we had a change of government we still had a huge housing crisis so the tcpa posed that we we need to revisit the garden city principles for the 21st century but the reality is that much of what people identified with is the idea of garden cities as beautiful places with tree-lined streets and nice homes, which is quite different to this sort of radical 
practical approach to thinking about how people might live in a fairer and more equitable way. We failed to realise this holistic, really powerful, practical aspect of the Garden City model. And so what the TCPA has been doing the last couple of years is to to mark the 125th anniversary of Howard's book about Garden Cities, which is this year. Um, We have been exploring really what the Garden City model means. So we have revisited the original text and those ideas which had inspired it. Tell us about what you've found going back to the texts. What we, we were really reassured, actually, because we, there was a chance that we went back and read them and we were like, we, and we would realise, wow, this is an old fashioned idea and not relevant now, 125 years later. But it was really exciting that we discovered that it was more relevant now than ever. And quite simply, when Howard was writing, he was inspired by so many movements of the time, the arts and crafts movement, Edward Carpenter, William Morris, Kropotkin, all of these ideas, all of these thinkers were thinking about how we can live in a, in a more sustainable and equitable way and realising that that was more relevant now than ever and realising the sort of foundational principles of the Garden City idea were really about enabling flourishing lives, f- flourishing lives for people and, and the planet, but recognising that flourishing lives depend on a meaningful and vibrant democracy. And that was a really powerful aspect of the Garden City model. It put people right at the heart of the decisions about what was happening in the places that were being developed. When I hear the phrase Garden Cities, I think about green space. How important is that to the whole principle? I mean, it's fundamental and it is one of the aspects which has made it most relevant today in terms of dealing with the climate emergency, for example, recognising the role of green infrastructure in mitigating and adapting to climate change, but really powerfully from the Garden City movement and its foundations, which was about the, the power of nature to enhance people's health and well-being. But those aspects of, of design of places, we've also discovered, have almost become a bit of a distraction from this, this really radical aspect of, of how we organise and how we pay for these places in in the first place. So that design is really important, but actually having the governance systems to make sure people genuinely can have a stake in in the places that are delivered and having that mutualisation of land values so that you can actually have a fairer distribution and and, and pay for the long-term stewardship of all of these fantastic assets that you're building in a place is actually what's really radical about it. So typically, what were the levels of engagement like? in the golden days of garden cities amongst residents? In the original garden cities, it was before we had a a planning system. The way people were involved then was actually being involved in the subsidiary companies which delivered the garden city itself. And so people were involved in all of those enterprises and there was a whole flourishing of of art and community groups which emerged from, from those original garden cities. So it was all about thinking about the outcomes for people um, and they were involved in those practical ways, which is why at that time, you know, Garden Cities got their reputation for being full of sandal-wearing vegetarians. And actually, some of those radical ways of living are, are some of the most progressive that we're thinking about today as well. So it's, it's turned full circle. There's obviously a big debate in this country about house building and all of that. How far away from the whole Garden City idea is that debate? In some ways, it couldn't be further away from it in terms of the fact that we're currently lacking a vision for the kind of places we want to develop and making sure that they're genuinely affordable. But on another aspect, it's much closer than people think. So before the Tomorrow 125 project and us freeing ourselves from our current broken development model, we looked forensically at actually learning the lessons from the past and realised actually... We have the instruments available to us right now. You know, the Post-War New Towns Act is still on the statute books. It was last consolidated in 1981, but with a few amendments accompanied by a strategic policy enabling local authorities to to work uh, and bring those forward. That could happen tomorrow if there was political will to do so. I feel like we should talk about 15-minute cities, which have become in some quarters controversial. How does that relate to this debate on garden cities? Yeah, it's really interesting, that debate that's erupted on social media about 15-minute cities and what they're trying to do. 15-minute neighbourhoods 
are about creating walkable places with locally available work um, and um, opportunities for people to be involved um, in the way that place is um, created and redeveloped. Then that's absolutely in line with the Garden City idea. But the Garden City idea is 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 quite different. It's actually more of a development model and it's more radical in terms of its approach to land ownership and sharing land values and issues such as long-term stewardship. So actually how places are governed and, and run and looked after in perpetuity as well. They're from the same rootstock, I think, but they're actually sort of, one's a design mechanism for regenerating places and one is a development model for the renewal and, and creation of new new places. I am very struck by this. I don't know whether Jeff is too, that all of our guests that we've interviewed, including you, have emphasised this it's not just about the sort of what, it's about the sort of how and the, if you like, the, the sort of model of ownership. The reason that, that is so important is because so we currently have a completely broken housing delivery model, which favours um, landowners, it favours volume house builders, and it's resulting in outcomes for people which are damaging their life chances. And... The Garden City approach historically and in this modern context effectively redistributes that huge amount of value which is created through the development process back to the people that will actually be living there and to pay for the creation and upkeep um, of those places. The way we've had for decades of, of creating and designing places has been really top down and the opportunity for to involve people more meaningfully in the way places are designed has all sorts of benefits from making uh, places more unique in design terms, but also giving people that sense of ownership and pride about where they live, which has all sorts of other social uh, benefits as well. Forgive my ignorance, but is that still the case in Letchworth and Wellin? One thing to know about Letchworth and Wellin is that they were both experiments. So they were experiments in, in applying Howard's ideas and they've both had their own challenging histories. Letchworth does in some senses because it has something called the Garden City Heritage Foundation, which continues to own land in Letchworth Garden City and um, it reinvests lots of its um, income in the upkeep of Letchworth Garden City. So that still retains a bit of that model. Absolutely. It's different. You know, it's not as radical as the original vision, but it's it still retains that in a really fantastic way. And when you look for optimism about the future of garden cities, is it in bits of the DNA of the idea being in future policies? Or do you see something quite close to Howard's version of a garden city being a reality? I think there's two aspects to that. First is about vision. And that's something we've lost. That's something we've lost in planning. That's something we've lost in in policy is this this positive vision for how we want to live. And we feel like the time is absolutely right for that post-COVID. But it's just also an opportunity to think positively about how we might want to live together and how we can really think about how to make the places we design sustainable and stand the test of time. Because things are are really bad. Our current development model is creating the slums of the future and places which are damaging people's life chances. And there's an opportunity to, to make this change and feels like the time is, is right for that. Katie Locke, you've been brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really enjoyed that. What did you think? Well, as a sandal-wearing vegetarian, let's move to Letchworth. Together? Together, yeah, let's go and enjoy that green space. I thought it was really interesting, you know, so so much of the conversation we've had on the podcast in recent years has been about green space and the role of um, biodiversity in the climate crisis, and there's a lot to like in the idea of garden cities with regards to that. And also just the scope of his idea, Ebenezer Howard, and the... Ebenezer, you talked about him as if he was your mate. Yeah, ne- Neasy, I call him. Neasy, yeah. yeah. Ebo. Ebo. Um, yeah. The fact that there was this route through for it then, and you've got this proof of concept. I like the fact that it is completely different to how things done. There's a lot of good evidence as to how that works. And I think you're right that what really intrigued me about the conversations is that this ownership model and where do the proceeds go so that they can be reinvested into the community is obviously a really, really important part of the Garden City concept. I I just think the whole notion that, you know, we think hard about these 
questions. And it does go to the 15-minute city thing, which I, you know, I wrote about them in my book. Now, they've become a sort of slightly ridiculous, in my view, conspiracy theory. I don't understand why that has become controversial. It's baffling to me. Yeah, I mean, the basic idea is that you'd be able to sort of walk or cycle to the places you work, the places you shop, and the place you live. And, I mean, it sounds... Quite nice, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Katie was sort of saying about the, the impact of green spaces, which is really important. You know, I think thinking, how do we create places to live that can enable people to lead, you know, better, happier, more fulfilled lives? I mean, that's that's got to be the right thing, doesn't it? You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we'd love to hear from you. What did you think? Have you got ideas for other things we should be talking about on the podcast or ideas for recipes that you would like to see Ed attempt. Or just praise. Or just praise. I don't know why you're so reticent about saying that. Well, no, I people like know it. it. I just don't like to bang on about people it. People know we're needy, so we might, yeah, as well just, we might as well just be blatant. Well, I mean, if you don't ask, you don't get. A shy bear gets an out. This comes from Neve, Neve Garbert, who says, hope this message finds you well. It finds me well. How is your health, Ed? No good, but this is such a brilliant email. Neve says, I'm 13 years old and politics is a big interest. So, sorry, sorry, can you just start with the first sentence? I, th- I always redact that stuff. <gasps> Don't redact. Neve wrote it for a purpose. She wrote it for us. What, what are the other listeners getting from me reading out Neve's praise? Neve says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and look forward to new episodes each week. Honestly, there is this thing in behavioural science, which is if you say other people are doing stuff, it's more likely that other people will do it, if you see what I mean. But they're already listening to it. Oh, good point. Touche. <laughs> Um, I'm 13 years old and politics is a big interest of mine and I'm always looking for ways to get involved when I can. This is why the concept of youth parliament is amazing to me as it gives young people a voice in politics. I was wondering uh, the possibility of you doing an episode talking about the importance of youth voices in our political system. Good idea. It's something we touched upon a little bit very early on, isn't it? But I'd love yeah, to revisit good idea. it because it's good idea, always like, really inspiring. I love the sign-off, by the way. Much respect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I might start using that. Yeah, it's good. What what do you tend to sign off with? Best wishes. It's a classic. But anyway, thank you, Neve. That was such a brilliant email. I particularly like the first line. Uh, <laughs> uh, this one comes from Francesca McKenney. Uh, subject, a new GCSE in natural history. Dear Jeff, dear Ed, dear, dear Ed, the dear and Ed is a lowercase, not lab sensitive. Uh, at a time when the news in... I suppose it's correct, it should be lowercase. It's correctly correct, I apologise, take that back. At a time when the news in education isn't exactly full of joy, the new GCSE in natural history seems to be something to be genuinely cheerful or hopeful about. The new GCSE will give young people the skills to look, listen and notice what's happening in their environment now, particularly as a result of climate change. The basic but important idea is to enable young people to learn the names of the plants that they see on their walk to school to know when they hear a robin sing that it's a robin. I thought this would be right up Ed's street. So I wondered if you'd be interested in putting on a podcast episode about the new GCSE to raise awareness among schools, parents and the wider public. I'm one of a group of academics, teachers and educators who are organising a conference about it in Bristol on June the 17th of this year. This is really interesting. I did vaguely yeah, know about great. this. And actually, a colleague of mine, Nadia Whitome, introduced a, a private member's bill around climate education. There's been this amazing social movement involving somebody, among others, called Scarlett Westbrook, uh, around climate education in schools. But this sounds really interesting. And maybe there's an episode here about what this does, whether there are other things we should be doing in relation to climate education. Maybe we could do the birdsong module and then sit a test. Maybe. Like a birdsong game show. Good idea. Okay. We could get the urban birder on. Yeah, he plays good clips idea. of, say, I don't know, a greenfinch or a cormorant. The first one to identify wins a prize. Isn't there a copyright issue? <laughs> <laughs> Would we have to go to the RSPB and sort of ask for copyright? <laughs> Well, do you, do you remember years ago? I think it was an orangutan took a selfie, and then there was this yes, huge was. legal case about who there owned was. the rights to that photo. There was. And anyway, it's a great idea. This one comes from Louis from Cardiff. Oh, you're going to read this one as well, are you? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to read it? Sorry. Take it. 
Hi, Ed and Jeff. My partner coached me into purchasing Glastonbury tickets this year, in part by explaining that Ed is a regular to the festival. Well, this is my second year in a row. Uh, I will enjoy the music. I'm sure. this, this raises an interesting question. Yeah. Would Glastonbury have sold out if you weren't part of I the lineup? Uh, I will enjoy the music, I'm sure, but I'm looking forward to seeing Ed live. Can Ed tell us any more about what he's expected to get involved with, both in terms of what he wants to take part in on stage and also who he's hoping to see himself? I mean, look, obviously, you know, Elton is very sensitive about me sharing the details about what he said is going to be his last performance at Glastonbury and and how I might be part of that. So, obviously, I'll have to keep... They're, they're knocking up a, a version of I'm Still Standing called I'm Still Standing in Doncaster North at the next election. Yeah, thank you. Can't give too much away about that part of what I'm doing, but the bit that I can be public about is I will be a part of the left field. I'll be in conversation with the Guardian journalist John Harris. Left field is organised by Billy Bragg. Uh, I've actually wanted to do the left field for ages... And uh, I will be there this year. Uh, and I think on the Saturday. This year, left field, next year, pyramid stage. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho. We're in the outro, ho, ho. Hey, Gene has got into Blue Peter. There's a Doctor Who competition and he's entered it and I, I really am hoping that he gets a Blue Peter badge because I never had one. Me neither. This surprises me. You seem exactly the sort of person who would have had a Blue Peter badge. I think you might have once said on Wikipedia that I did, but I don't. Was that people working for you trying to make you look cool? No, I think it was just an assumption about it. <laughs> who presents Blue Peter these days? I don't know. It's very, um, like to, to my old eyes, it's very raucous these days. It's like watching TFI Friday. Really? Yeah, there's people whooping and cheering. Wow. It's, it's very good. Like He's engaged by it, but I, I feel old when I watch it. Is it still on a sort of similar time than it used to be? Yeah, I think it's in the Cracker Jack slot now, actually. Just once a week? Yeah, on a Friday. What are you up to these next few days? What's happening in Millie World, the Milliverse? The Mushu Chicken is coming this weekend, I think. Oh, version 4.0. Yeah, you're keeping up well. Got your dried mushrooms? Got my dried wood ear mushrooms. Uh, the... Cold water swimming is not very cold water. It's very balmy these days. How many degrees? 16, I think. Oh, that's that's nudging up against what I was swimming. Yeah. I mean, but you've never invited me. I don't think you'd really want to come, would you? No, I wouldn't, no. But no. I do like taking umbrage at not being invited. Yeah, you're very good at taking umbrage. Honestly, you have the UK all-comers record at taking thank umbrage. You, thank you, thank you. I'm a real winner at that. Yeah, you're Winnerville. They can't take it, that away from exactly. me. Exactly. You're, you're no loserville when it comes to taking umbrage. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? We should. Thanks to Josh Tidy, Nick Skinner and Katie Locke. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer with backup uh, from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed produced our music. James Deacon did our eye dance. And our artwork was produced by... Henry Cole. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Memory Miliband. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Not in Loserville. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.